Thanks, Jordan. Good morning, church. It is really great to see you uh, here in the room and to see you at home on the live stream. We're grateful for you and grateful for the church to be gathered in, in whatever way you've chosen to uh, gather here this morning. Uh, we're excited about that. We had a good 9 o'clock service. I have to admit, though, after uh, 16 weeks of only having to preach once on Sunday, I'm a little tired right now. So uh, this having to preach twice again, is it's rough. So, But no, I'm super grateful to have you uh, here. Now, for those of you, uh, not the uh, live stream folk, but for those of you who are here in the room, we had to talk about what happens if, you know, we have all these restrictions. What happens if people break the rules? What happens if they... You know, they're supposed to be in the red line, and they go in the yellow line. What if they, um, what if they don't uh, respect physical distancing? Um, you know, what if, what if they, um, I don't know, what other rules there are? You, but you can't, you can't do these things. So uh, we came up with this thing. Pastor Dwayne came up with this thing. If you like soccer, um, so first offense, you get a yellow card, okay? Second offense, red card, and you're out, okay? So we're all clear on that, and then you can't play next week, right? Because that's the way that works in, in soccer, so... Hopefully no one gets yellow carded or red carded here uh, this morning. All right, we will be in the book of Habakkuk chapter 3 in uh, just a moment, but uh, let's bow our heads. Let's thank God for this opportunity to be together uh, here this morning. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are uh, so very grateful to get to this day to um, enjoy uh, the gathering in this room, to um, also have our uh, people gathering online And Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace toward us. Thank you for the reach that you've given to us through the live stream. Father, I'm grateful for your spirit who indwells the church no matter where we are and no matter when it is. And so, God, I I pray that you continue to bind us together, continue to bless us as a church. And and Father, do an amazing work in all of us as we even just take this baby step forward in relaunching in-person worship. And, And Father, we uh, we, we want to see your glory. We want you to work in this extraordinary way. So, Father, do that today as we get your word open now. Help us to hear from you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen? I'm looking for those amens now. I haven't heard those for a while, so uh, give me some of those this morning. That'll be awesome. All right, well, maybe, um, maybe in the last uh, 16 weeks of lockdown, 16 weeks of restrictions, as well as the unknown road that's ahead of us, because we really don't know how this is going to play out in the weeks and months ahead, maybe all of that is enough to convince us, or maybe we didn't need any convincing at all, that God's will is often difficult to accept. You think that's true? God's will is often difficult to accept. And some of you, of course, have proven that true in your own personal lives, because you face some things where you just go like, I know that was God's will, but I'm not sure I was really willing to accept that. Some of you, of course, have experienced the loss of loved ones, even recently. Some of you have had accidents that have changed the course of your life. There have been cancer diagnoses and children who walked away from the faith that they were raised in. There have been job losses and economic setbacks And time and time again, these trials and many other ones have just proven to us that God's will is often difficult to accept. Well, in this final message in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet comes to terms with God's will 
And he ends his lament. The entire book of Habakkuk is a lament, a biblical lament. And he ends his lament. He ends his complaining. He ends it with a prayer. In fact, not just a prayer, but a song that responds to God's will in the way that every believer should actually respond to God's will. In fact, biblical lament as a kind or a genre of literature in the Bible always ends with this kind of resolution because every believer in God should come to this place of resolution where we accept God's will, where we pledge our faithfulness and our commitment to Him, listen, despite the circumstances of our life. And so that's the question that's pressing on us this morning. It's, will you and I respond in the same way to God's often difficult to accept will for us and for this world? So let's turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. I'm going to read this, 19 verses. I'm going to read this and we'll get right into it. Habakkuk 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. 
He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Well, here's the point, and if you have the notes in front of you, you can find the notes at hbc.info. I will respond to God's evident but often difficult to accept will by first acknowledging His perfect work. I have to acknowledge His perfect work in this world and in my life. Now, after struggling greatly through the first two chapters, the prophet has come to terms with God's will, and he offers in verse 1, he says of of chapter 3 here, a prayer which is also a song. In fact, there are five musical notations in in this chapter. The first, of course, is in verse 1, according to Shigianoth, no idea what this word means. It could be the tune. It could be, here's the lyrics, but sing it to this particular melody or tune, or it could be a style. Sing it in this particular way. So, we could say, that sing it in, in a jazz style or sing it in a rap style. I think the only thing we really know about this word is it, it's telling us not to sing it in a country style. For sure, it's not country. We can say that with some certainty. And then three times you see the word selah, which I didn't read as I went through the text, verses 3, 9, and 13. There's no real sense of what this word means. It could mean rest, but it's almost certainly some kind of musical notation. And then in verse 19, the very last line, to the choir master with stringed instruments, this was meant to be sung when the congregation was gathered, that the worship team, the worship leaders, the choir was to sing this, and it was to be accompanied by stringed instruments of some kind. And so, it's a song, but it's not just a nice song. It's not just a sentimental song that recounts some particular time in history, but it is this heartfelt prayer coming from the prophet. Verse 2, in fact, he says, "'O Lord, I've heard the report of you. I've heard all the things that you're saying and all the things that you're doing. I've heard the report of you. I'm thinking about all these things you've done in the past. I'm thinking about all these things that you've done and are doing in the world. And your work, oh Lord, he says, do I fear? I fear what you're doing in the world. I, I'm in awe of you. I revere you for the awesomeness of the work you're doing in the world. In fact, what he's saying here is, I fear you more than I fear the consequences. I fear you more than the circumstances. I fear you more than the Babylonians that we've been talking about. You see, if you've missed the first few messages in this series, um, the bad news was uh, that God had delivered to Judah a pronouncement of, of their sin, that judgment had come upon them because they were not repentant, because they were not following the ways of God. The Babylonians were going to come and were going to invade them, and that was going to be the discipline that God brought down on their head. Habakkuk and the other prophets had been preaching about this. They had been saying to the people over and over again, repent, 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 or God's going to discipline you. And they wanted the answer to be, they wanted the response to be a revival. They wanted the people to listen to the preaching, to repent of their sins, for God to relent on the discipline that he was going to bring, and for everything to continue as it was, only with a more holy people, a people more devoted to Yahweh, to their God. But then it became obvious that that was not going to happen, that the discipline would not come by the sending of a revival, but by the sending of an invader, that Judah would not repent, but in fact would be conquered 
and the best of her people carried off into exile. And what Habakkuk is saying here is that as horrific as that would be, to be under Babylonian rule, to have the best of your people taken away, to have the crushing circumstances that would come with being part of that empire, it would still be worse to fall into the hands of God. It would be far worse to oppose God. And no matter what circumstances we find ourselves, this is such a great point for us, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in today, rather than complaining and going after him and accusing him of something, we should receive our circumstances because we ought to fear God more than we fear the things we're going through. And even though that's all true, he still pleads with God. So he's coming to this place of acceptance that this is the way it's going to be, acknowledging the perfect work of God. He still pleads with God. Verse 2 continues, in the midst of the years, in the midst of what we're going through, in the midst of what we're going to go through, revive it. Make something good of it, God. In the midst of the years, make it known. In the midst of all we're going to go through, God, let your glory be shown. Let us learn more about who you are. In wrath, even as you're judging us, in wrath, he says, remember mercy. Now, I look at that prayer right there, just that latter part of verse 2, and I think about what we've been going through here in the last 16 weeks, and whatever else is ahead of us for the next 16 weeks and the next year, whatever it takes. And I think what a great prayer for us. In the midst of these months and years, God, revive it, use it, do something. Move in God's people. Get people who don't know you yet to become followers of Christ. Redeem it, revive it, do something awesome. In the midst of the years, make it known. Let people know that there is a God who is sovereign over all things and that His Son, Jesus Christ, is the Savior of the world. In wrath, remember mercy. God, as we're going through this time where where people are affected by the virus and people are uh, indirectly affected by the virus, where there's economic setbacks, where there's job losses, where there are people who, who are sick and hurting, not as a result directly of the virus, but because we haven't been able to treat them, for all the mental health issues that people are going through and the social distancing that's hurt so many relationships, God, in the midst of all of that... As you in some way judge the world here in wrath, remember mercy. Relieve our pain. Help our suffering. Bring us back economically. Eliminate the virus. Bring people to health. Help people think in good ways about all of this. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk knows and he accepts what's coming, but he never relents in his impassioned plea and prayer for God to be merciful. And so what we have here, this isn't just resignation. It isn't just us throwing up our hands in the air and saying, oh God, God's going to do whatever he's going to do. I'm just going to whatever. It's not that. We still have the privilege as his sons and daughters to come to him, to come to the king, to approach the throne room and to bring these pleas to God. In fact, this is why we started this initiative, prayer 
uh, PrayForYou.ca, and we have these lawn signs going out, and we're assembling these people to pray into the community and to let people know we're willing to pray for them because we want to take their hurts and their heartaches to the throne of grace because we have that privilege. The king wants to hear from us. In fact, Hebrews 12, uh, 4.12 is awesome. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is, would you agree with me? This is a time of need. True? This is a time of need that we're in. And so we ought to be crashing the throne room of grace with these prayers and these pleas to God. And then as if to remind himself of the things that God had done in the past, he sings what we have here in verses uh, 3 through 15. And in fact, two very distinct stanzas of the song here, verses 3 to 7 and then 8 to 15. And he's rehearsing actual events from history where God had worked, which accentuated some of God's most obvious attributes. We see these, verse 3, he calls him the Holy One. And that his splendor covered the heavens. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Acknowledging here his justice flowing from his holiness, he sings this in verse 5, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. So pandemics and plagues are the result of sin marring this world, but are still entirely within the sovereign control of God. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Then notice he says, verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. Saw the land of Midian, the curtains of the land of Midian trembled. And so in this we see all these wonderful attributes of God. We, we see him in his glory. We see his power. We see his eternality, his holiness, his sovereignty, his judgment. We said earlier in the series that these very attributes of God are the stepping stones. As we think about all of the swampland, all the marsh around us, and all the places where we might step and sink right down into it, that these are the sure footholds every step of the way through that marshy land. This is where we step when he shakes the nations. This is where we step when affliction comes and when we tremble in the face of trials and traumas. We can acknowledge, yes, yes, I'm trembling, I'm trembling, but God is powerful. Yes, I'm afflicted, but God is just. Yes, I'm shaken, but our God is sovereign. I remind myself of who He is, and then I can survive anything. Verses 8 through 15, this is the second stanza, give us even more powerful images that no doubt point to past events where, where God worked, and the phrase here, God worked in His fury against evil. But there's also here a a yet future for us, something more to come. These are prophecies, a time when God will ultimately bring Babylon and the nations down. Verse 13 says, he brings them down for the salvation of his people to save us 
He brings them down for the salvation of his people, for the salvation of his anointed. And so to survive whatever it is that you're surviving, acknowledge that God's at work. Acknowledge that his work is perfect, in fact. Acknowledge that his work is perfect in the past, that it's perfect right now. That might be the hardest one. And that God's work will be perfect on into the future. Rest in the knowledge that God is, verse 15 says, God is the surging of mighty waters and that He's coming to our rescue. Acknowledge His perfect work. And in light of who He is and what He's done, you and I ought to be then, notice this next, submitting to His discipline. Submitting to his discipline. In other words, not fighting him. God is going to discipline his children, and we ought not to fight him. Now, I don't know if it's surprising to you or not to find out that as a child, I often challenged any discipline my parents tried to bring against me. Is that surprising to anybody here that I would challenge that? I I mean, I, I was trying to think back if my parents had ever disciplined me without me saying, why? Why? Why do I deserve that? And, and pushing back and fighting them on every little bit of discipline that they brought against me. And I wonder if any of the parents here are going, yeah, my kids do that. Or when I was a kid, I did that. Um, because I think that's fairly common. We tend to push back on discipline. We tend to complain about God. We tend to resist His efforts to discipline us. And when it becomes very severe, some people in fact say, I'm out of here, like the child who says, I'm running away from home. We abandon God totally. We walk away from our faith because we refuse to receive the discipline that He's bringing in our lives. And instead, we ought to be submitting to Him. Habakkuk sings here, verse 16, I hear, and he's talking about all the things he just talked about in the previous verses, I hear all of that, and here's my response, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. This is Habakkuk's response to God's discipline toward him and the nation. And I wonder if you've ever experienced the presence of God in that way. I wonder if you've ever been before the Lord in a way that your legs trembled, that your lips quivered before Him, that you felt the rottenness in your own bones as you were confronted with the holiness of God. I mean, I think the truth is that we have very little sense of this today of what it means to come before God in this way and have this kind of experience. There's an often overlooked moment, just a moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, and only one of the four Gospels even records this. It was the night of Jesus' arrest, and the mob had come charged by the temple. The mob had come with temple uh, officials to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in John 18, this is the way it it played out, John 18, 4 to 6, then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus knew he was going to be arrested, he knew he was going to be condemned, he knew he was going to be crucified. Jesus knew all of that. 
knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to this mob, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They couldn't stand before him. The, the, the awesomeness of Jesus. Now remember, he's still in his incarnate form. This isn't the transfiguration where his glory is shining. This is still Jesus in his human form. This is still Jesus who was barely recognized by the vast majority of people, not recognized at all, who went to his own hometown and they didn't recognize him. He's so veiled in flesh that you can't see the deity. And yet in this moment, when he tells them that he's Jesus, they all take a step back and fall down. His awesomeness, just a flash of the glory of God blows them off their feet because their intent toward him was malicious. They couldn't stand before him. The Spirit of God in Jesus reminded them in that very crucial moment, reminded them who was actually in charge of this situation, and it wasn't that mob. It reminded them that this arrest, listen, that this arrest was the will of God as would be his crucifixion. See, this is the kind of experience that people have when they come face to face with God himself. This is why we find out in, uh, James writes in, in James chapter 2, that the, the demons know him and tremble before him. In my morning reading, I'm working through uh, Mark's gospel, and in Mark chapter 5, there's the demon-possessed man. In fact, he's possessed by a legion of demons. And the demons are so afraid of Jesus and they bargain with him about where he might send them because they know the status quo isn't going to stay in place. They're so afraid of him. Recall that when Isaiah saw the vision of God's throne room, this is Isaiah chapter 6, in verses uh, 5 to 7, he sees this picture of the throne room of God. And the first thing out of his mouth is, woe, me, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm lost, I'm undone, I'm coming apart at the seams. That's the effect of sin in us. That's what makes it impossible for us to stand before God. We can't stand before him. John had the same experience. The apostle John is being given the revelation that we uh, would read and, and be encouraged and see what God is going to do in the end times. This revelation is being shown to him. And right at the, at the start, Revelation 1, 70 to 18, when I saw Jesus, John said, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is John. John had walked with him. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. I fell at his feet as though dead. But Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. 
You see it? Habakkuk said, rottenness entered my bones. Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. John fell down as though dead. The demons trembled before him. We can't stand before a holy God. Isaiah could only continue to stand there because one of the seraphim, this is what we read in Isaiah 6, one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now you can stand before God and see the vision. Jesus lifted John up, reminding him of the atonement. You see, we can stand before God only because of what he has done for us, only because of the cross and the empty tomb. And we ought to tremble before him because of that. How can we get there? How can we be so in awe of God that we tremble before him? I mean, this is the essence of submitting to his discipline. We'll never be able to submit to his discipline if we don't revere him, if we have no sense of who he actually is, who we're dealing with here. I mean, if you're merely experiencing God in a token way, a little religion sprinkled into an otherwise self-centered and secularized life, then you won't have any room for God to discipline you and you will argue and complain whenever he does. Now listen, Habakkuk got to a better place, verse 16. He says this, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. In other words, I know we're going to be invaded by Babylon, but I'm going to wait for God to vindicate. I know it's all going to play out well. I know I can submit to his discipline now because there's something really great coming down the road. So I'm going to wait for that. We are not good at waiting. Write that down. Make it first person. I am not good at waiting. Just write that down. I'm not good at submitting to discipline. But again, this is not throwing up my hands in resignation. Even in the midst of of submitting to his discipline, we have this opportunity again to stand before the Father and to express our heart to him. The prayer is very emotive. He's, He's bringing his heart to God. God isn't saying, you know, just go ahead and accept my discipline. Just, just, you just got to like it. No, he's saying, come with your heart and pour it out and, and be sad and lament over it. Speak powerful words. This isn't a sterile prayer list of requests, confessions, and acknowledgments. It's joyful, we'll see in a moment, and it's plaintive. It's both of those things. It flows from the life of someone who's experiencing what they're praying. And as we age and walk with Christ, I've, I've crossed over the midway point of my 50s now. People remind me I can no longer call myself middle-aged. I'm well past that, apparently. But the older you get, the longer you walk with Christ, the more you understand this, the more your prayers become increasingly intimate and more real, and those who have more gray hair in the room and more years than I have and who have walked with Christ longer know this. 
it becomes more intimate and more real because we've experienced more pain and more discipline and more trials. We've come to the Lord more times. We've poured out more tears. The more of life you experience, the more you take that in a very emotive, powerful way to the Lord, the more you understand this. The more we get how hard it really is. Genuine prayer flows from a heart that is experiencing life with all of its challenges and difficulties. And not from a list or a liturgy. You got to hear the heartache in this. Verse 17, this is what Habakkuk says. And this is where he's really beginning to come to terms with it all. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now remember, this is a very agrarian society. Farming was everything. As it is, incidentally, to us, we just don't see it as much. Farmers feed cities, I think, is the motto, and in this case... All the crops are ruined. All the farms are closed. There is no planting. There are no crops in the fields. There will be no harvest. The flocks are gone. There are no cattle in the stalls. The economy is shut down. There is no food. The grocery stores are empty. No jobs. No factories working, no prosperity, no security. It's all in ruins. Habakkuk is saying that this is where it's going to go. This is where God is taking them. And still Habakkuk says, I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to submit to your discipline. I'm going to go where you think we need to go, that's the path I'm going to follow. Whatever you think is right, I'm going to agree with you, and we're going to go down that path. And in fact, not just accepting the discipline part of it, but then be found, notice this third, be found worshiping Him with joy. How could I possibly do that? But Habakkuk says in verse 18, yet, okay, everything from verse 17 in mind, as ruined as the economy and the world is going to be, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, if you take this back to the earlier illustration about parents disciplining children, Take it back there for a second. This is roughly equivalent to parents saying to their kids, I'm sorry for what you've done. You're grounded for the next week. I'm sorry, I'm going to need your phone. You can't have it for the next week. And as the child goes down the hallway, they are, praise my parents. They are the most awesome parents in all the neighborhood. My parents are more worthy than any other parents. And I laud them and worship them in this moment. No child does that. If your phone gets taken away, you're not praising your parents. And yet that's exactly what the follower of Christ is supposed to do. That's the place, in fact, that Habakkuk gets to. That's the place where we can land. In fact, these final three verses provide 
a capsule of the entire book, everything we've been going through in Habakkuk here. And in verse 19, we're looking at verse 18 here, but in verse 19, we find a verse that is worthy of a wall plaque. Verse 19 is a verse worthy of Instagram with a wonderful little nature scene behind it. Verse 18, in fact, is very positive, encouraging as well. But verse 17 is the part that you never see on a wall plaque. No one ever takes verse 17 and makes up a nice little art piece for that and posts it on Instagram. But these three verses belong together, don't they? We don't really get to verses 18 and 19 until we've passed through verse 17. I cannot and will not worship him unless I understand who he is in his fullness. If I say I'm here to worship God, but I'm unwilling to submit to his discipline, then my worship really isn't worth very much and it isn't getting through because I'm not actually worshiping the God of the word. I'm coming to God on my own terms, not his, and that's not going to work at all. And there certainly won't be any joy in it because it's dependent on circumstances. And we've talked in the past about this, the difference between happiness and and joy. Happiness is dependent on my circumstances being favorable. I need everything to be going right in my life for me to be a happy person. I need everyone in my life to like me. I I need to have enough money in the bank. I, I need to have my family around me. I need to be healthy personally. I need to not be losing anyone in my life. I need all the circumstances, everything just working perfectly, and I can be a happy person. Joy, on the other hand, we have defined in the past as supernatural delight in the plans, purposes, and people of God. And as the lockdown progressed over these past 16 weeks, a lot of people were not happy about their circumstances. Is that fair? A lot of people were not happy with their circumstances. I would be uh, the first to confess, I was not happy about my circumstances. I didn't like being locked down. I didn't like being away from my family. I grew to loathe Zoom meetings. I just wanted to be with people again. That's totally understandable. And if you were not happy over the last 16 weeks, everyone gets a pass on that. There was no real reason to be happy. But if you love Jesus Christ, no one takes your joy. The last 16 weeks should not have affected your joy because it's supernatural delight not in my circumstances, but in the plans and purposes and people of God. And so a good question right now is, how can I worship with joy? How can I bring my worship to God joyfully when you've told me, Todd, we can't sing in the room? Or, for those at home on the live stream, you have the worship team producing these videos for you to watch, But you know that all the people around you, and yourself included, don't have very good voices. And so there's all that awkwardness of, do I sing out or do I not sing out? And if I sing out, and it's hard, isn't it? And so here we are being encouraged to worship God. And there's a wonderful irony here that we're gathered together in person for the first time in 16 weeks. 
and you've been told not to sing, and then the singing at home in the live stream is the best we can do, but still not perfect, and the irony is we're studying a song this morning. I wonder how that worked out. And so, really it comes down to this, as important as it is, as important as singing is, our joy and our worship cannot be dependent on singing. I thought I'd get one amen for that, so I'll I'll say it again. I'll give you another run at it, okay? As important as singing is, our joy and our worship cannot be dependent on singing. Amen? It can't. It can't. Some of you may know the name uh, Matt Redman. He's a a worship leader, songwriter. He's been doing it for well more than 20 years now. Um, British guy. And uh, he wrote a song uh, more than 20 years ago, in fact, in the late 90s, And it came out of a particular experience that his church, Soul Survivor Church in Watford, England, was going through. The lead pastor of that church had come to the place where he had realized that the church was becoming um, a leading church in um, in, in providing worship to the world, contemporary worship, and, uh, and that maybe what had happened in their own church was that it had become too much about the music itself that they were focused so much on performance um, that people were not really engaging in actual worship in the congregation. So he did something that was quite radical at the time. He actually shut down the worship team. No band on stage, shut down the sound system. They would get together and they would do other elements that did not include music. Now, over a period of time, they eventually phased that back in and they did get back to it, but only after the pastor really believed that they had learned something about worship. And he asked this question because he he really felt, the quote was, he felt that they had lost their way in worship. But he said this, when you come through the doors on a Sunday, or we could say to the live stream, when you log in on a Sunday from where you are, when you come through the doors on Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? What are you bringing as your offering to God? That has to be more than just singing, more than just whatever financial giving you might bring. And out of that experience, Matt Redman wrote a song that some of you will know and is very familiar. He said this, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come Longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. Then he says this, I'll bring you more than a song. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. That's what God wants from every one of us. Singing is wonderful. It's amazing. But He wants our heart. Offerings, financial offerings are wonderful, but He wants our hearts. Our service is wonderful, but He wants our hearts. And this particular season of of worshiping at home and gathering via live stream, we're coming to this room where it's still considerably unusual and, and, and not what we've been accustomed to. But can I bring my heart? What offering am I bringing when I come? Am I able to worship Him despite the circumstances? Am I able to worship Him with joy?
And then this final one. I will respond to God's evident but often difficult to accept will by testifying of him to others. Notice what Habakkuk says here in verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. I mean, this is now a, 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 a proclamation that Habakkuk is making to anyone who will listen. He's testifying to what God is doing in his life. He says, um, God has been good to me, even in the midst of tragedy, loss, trial, and pain. Even if things are not even recovered on this side of eternity for me, I will be hopeful, I will be faith-filled, and I will be courageous. And in the midst of the days that we're currently living in, the world needs more than just positivity. There's a lot of talk about that. Let's just be positive. It's a positive stories. Lots of positivity. The world needs more than positivity. It needs more than drive-by parties. It needs more than, our, than for our, our, our parks and playgrounds and patios to open. We need something more than just our circumstances to change. They may not change for a while. We need something within. Take a line out of the song. We need something that's of worth. And there's only one who is worthy, amen? That something of worth is Jesus Christ. And having him, we need to tell everyone about him. Because this world is a brutal place. And there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. So tell everyone about him. Tell everyone, as verse 19 says, tell everyone that God the Lord and his son Jesus Christ, tell everyone that he's your strength. Tell everyone that Jesus makes your feet like the deer's. Tell everyone that Jesus makes you tread on your high places. Because when, when you have him, you can endure any circumstance. When you have him, you can survive anything. When you have him, you can actually thrive in the midst of the discipline of God and the judgment of God. We'll, we'll thrive in the midst of anything that this world hurls our way. Or more importantly, anything that God wills for us. Even if it's difficult to accept. Well, we came into this series asking a single question, where is God? Well, He's right here. He's right there. He's right where you are. He's right where He's always been, bringing about His perfect will for you and for me and for this world. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you for uh, your grace toward us, for your love. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we know that who you are, who your son is, and what your Holy Spirit means to me, means to each one of us, that is the anchor, that's the foundation while this world trembles and shakes at your voice, 
we have solid ground beneath our feet. So God, help us to know who you are and to see how you're working in history and to acknowledge all of that, to accept your discipline, to know that you love us and you're growing us. God, help us, even in the absence of music the way we would normally have it, help us, God, to worship you with joy. And help us, Father, to tell everyone you put in our way that the reason why we have this joy is Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time of gathering. Thank you for those at home watching on the live stream and those in the room. Father, I pray that your blessing would be upon all of us. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.